HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. The Houseman XP Podcast Network is taking you on the journey. Your host, Master Trainer Heath Hyatt, will combine his decades of experience as a houndsman and as a professional trainer that will light the path forward and make our packs lighter on this lifelong journey to become better hunters and houndsmen. There are no shortcuts, so lace up those boots and grab a dog leash. The journey begins now. Hey guys, the journey on Houndsman XP is teamed up with Go Wild. Go Wild is a social media platform that was made for hunters by hunters. If you guys and gals have listened to any of the other podcasts that I've been on, you know what a huge outdoor enthusiast I am. I love being in the woods with my hounds. There's nothing more exciting than hearing the thunder of a spring gobbler. I love fishing for trout in the brooks and the streams, and I love being on the river chasing that ever-elusive fish of a thousand cast, the muskie. Go Wild is the place that I can post my trophies, hunts, and memories without being censored. But Go Wild is so much more than that. It's a place to share your stories, sharpen your skills, hone your tactics, get gear reviews, and shop for anything outdoors. When you make a purchase from the Go Wild store, everything is free shipping. Anything that you purchase anywhere in the country, no matter how big, free shipping. So go down to the show notes, click on the Go Wild link at the bottom, and get signed up today. And let's go wild. If y'all purchase anything from Go Wild, make sure that you're using the Houndsman XP promo code. And that code is going to be HXP10. So when you go in there and you download your cart, and you come up to the bottom and it says promo code, add Houndsman XP to it. Hey guys, Heath here with The Journey. We are going to roll into this episode um, again, going back to the SHOT Show. Met some really cool people, made a lot of contacts, networking was off the chart. Um, and today, we are going to have a guy that rolled up to a booth, started talking, he's seen my hat, and got to talking about dogs. And it was just a miracle that he didn't get fired, because we stood there and talked dogs for way, way too long. But I found out that he was in the bird dog world, and um, just piqued my interest, as always, I always want to learn. And we talked, went back the next day, we talked some more, and finally talked him into coming on the podcast and telling us about what he does, which is really cool. Um, he works for Axel, 
which is a hearing protection and hearing aid company. It actually got me some of the GS Extremes, and I'm really excited to start putting those things to use. <clears throat> I got them in, got them tuned in, and hooked up on me. And Anyway, so today I'm going to have Tyler Smith from Eagle Mountain, Utah. So the journey has went out west, which we haven't done a lot, but we are definitely broadening our horizons. So Tyler, how is things in Utah this evening? <laughs> hey, Heath, thanks for having me. Uh, things in Utah are cold and snowy, but absolutely fantastic. Yeah, so it's not it this morning a lot of the schools here were too hour delayed and I mean I'm I have to say I'm ready for spring. Like the winter, I'm done with it. Like you can keep your cold <laughs> weather, you can keep it just keep it all out there, but we're we're dealing with the same thing and we're in that nasty time of year actually where it's cold and rainy and wet and the ground thaws out and turns into a mud mess and then it freezes back up so kind of where we're at too that's awesome you know one of the saving graces of being out west is that my hunting season still continues for two more weeks oh nice. so i i have the opportunity yeah i have the opportunity to keep going after them even though it's uh doom and gloom here as well all right well so we're going to talk about we're going to talk about dogs here in a minute the Tyler, tell the listeners a little bit about you, um, where you're at, what you do, and we're going to dive into the dogs. That sounds great. Um, so, yeah, like you said, my name's Tyler. I uh, grew up here in, in central Utah. I went to school at uh, Lone Peak High School, uh, ended up graduating from Weber State University in their professional sales program. Um, I'm currently the national sales director for a absolutely kick butt hearing protection shooting company that specializes in the state of the art uh, shooters protection gear known as Axel A X I L, and um, absolutely loving what I do for a living. Get to to meet people like yourself, and uh, I'm I'm a sales guy through and through. Uh, I'm more of a relationship guy than I am a sales guy. But, uh, you know, found my niche in, in the big earth here to um, help people protect their ears while uh, while shooting. So, yeah. And the 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 style of hunting you do and the hunting you do like that's very important because you're shooting multiple times a day, probably multiple times a shot. Um, so, yeah, I can see how that fits right into your your um, lifestyle, really. Yeah, you know, uh, amusingly, I, I used to watch my grandpa, he's an old school sheep herder, shoot with no shooters pro off the back of a horse. I mean, tr true John Wayne uh, of his day, guy was tough as nails. I've seen all my family before him as well. And I've uh, just recognized the need at uh, an early age because most of my family's deaf from shooting guns <laughs> and live action. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I yeah, I... I deal with tonight is pretty bad in my, my left ear. It's in my right ear too. My left ear is really bad. And it come from shooting. We're bit growing up as a kid, not having any hearing protection. I mean, we don't, we, nobody told us to wear that stuff. We were shooting shotguns and running weed eaters and chainsaws and lawnmowers and, you know, track. <laughs> we, we just didn't wear it. And now, you know, it's 10 times bad. And then, you know, I kind of, I kind of poke fun at it, but you know, the last dog I had was a Belgian Malinois and, he literally barked in my car nonstop, and 
I contribute a lot of that hearing loss because of that. I mean, it was nonstop in my ear. And when I got my third dog, which is a Dutchie now, like, yeah, he's quiet. Like, you do not even know he's in there, and I don't even want to hear him that he's in there. The only time I need him to bark <laughs> when I tell him to. <laughs> yep. That's the mark of a true German dog. I don't know much about the Dutchies, but I prefer my dogs dead quiet and calm. Yep. All right. Yeah. So talking about dogs, Tyler, tell tell everybody the organization that you represent, and then I'm going to kind of probe a little bit into your background and how long you've had dogs and what actually lit that flame. So, yeah, let's let's lay it out there for the listeners what you actually – uh, do and represent in the dog world. Awesome. Well, what I what I actually represent is live action and good times. Um, you know, that's what I live for is hunt, hunting behind really well trained and really well bred dogs. So I'm a connoisseur of fine shotguns and bird dogs. And honestly, I don't care what kind of dog it is. I just like watching them work. So, um, <clears throat> but a little bit about me there. So I belong to the DKGNA. Deutsch Kurzhaar Group North America. It's uh, the newest Kurzhaar Club in North America. I've been the uh, founding member and uh, you know a lifelong member, and I'm the current uh, vice president of the club as well. So I get to uh, see you know how things work and the ins and outs of the club. I've represented the board for five years and got to correlate back and forth between. Um, you know, North America and Germany and, and had a lot of great interactions developing uh, lifelong friendships and relationships with members here in North America. Yep. And how long have you been the vice president of that organization? Yes, this this year will be my sixth year, and I plan to not stand for re-election. I've got two sweet young boys at house that need their dad back, but um, I've had the uh, honor and privilege of almost six years now, uh, being the VP of DKGNA. And it's, uh, it's kind of a unique thing here in North America. Kurtz, Kurtz clubs are, uh, plentiful. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of information and con- confusion to people who may not know, uh, the differences between, you know, say my club and, uh, the other clubs that exist in North America. And so, um, you know, one thing I like to bring to light is that <clears throat> all of the Kurtzar clubs in the world all report and are under the umbrella of the DKV, which is the Deutsch Kurtzharver Bond or the parent, the parent club, the original Kurtzhar club that was founded, um, you know, lo- a long time ago. So, mm-hmm. And what is it that, um, wh- where is that based out of? Like, where is the well, club, like, where is it, like, stationed? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so the, the main hub of our memberships here in Utah and, and primarily out west, however, we are a nationwide club, hence the group North America. Mm-hmm. Um, we have members, you know, all the way from the farthest east coast as you could get to uh, California. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we had, we, we had tests all over the nation last year for our organization, but the majority of um, the membership is based right here in Utah. I got you. <clears throat> so how many dogs do you have right now? <laughs> well, how, how many dogs I have and how many I want are two different things. So, um, <laughs> but I've got, so I've currently got three females in my kennel. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm not a very large uh, operation. I uh, choose to stay small for a reason, mainly just because I want to keep the, you know, my, my quality high and, and the attention I can give each dog uh, high as well. So I've got um, Jinx, who is my foundation dog. She came out of a kennel in Illinois. Uh, Steve Kosmicki was the breeder. Um, Von Kelger is her name. So Jinx Von Kelger, she's a J litter puppy from his uh, J breeding. And he, give, he gave her the name, interestingly enough, because she was the only puppy born in the J litter. So he felt like he was jinxed. Mm. And uh, <laughs> she let's put it this way. She's lived up to that name, good and bad, um, for lots of things. But she is a once-in-a-lifetime dog for me. Yeah, so... Just so the listeners know, I know when you say the J litter, I know exactly what that means. Um, in fact, the we just had a litter out of my one of my, my male dog, and we started at A. And can you kind of tell tell people what what that stands for, what it represents, what it means um, for for y'all? Yep. Yeah. So the the Deutsch Kurzar breeding system is highly regulated. It's a performance system by which each dog must hit minimum standards in each category, being performance hunt tests, genetics such as hip dysplasia, OCD, Von Wildebrands, confirmation, and temperament prior to being bred. When a dog has reached that and a breeder has also met the standard, now what people don't understand about a true breeding club is that each breeder in our organization has to, to prove that they are uh, worthy and representing the club well through several different metrics. But um, <clears throat> when a registered kennel does a litter, they start at a litter being their first litter. Mm-hmm. And then they work through the alphabet until they reach Z. And then they start over with like A1, B, or A, A2, B2, C2. And uh, that's kind of how you can tell where they're at in their breeding. Mm-hmm. And um, the J litter is referring to that breeder's, uh, you know, whatever J land number wise litter number. Yep. Yep. And, and go ahead. Yeah. One more piece to that would be the breeder's responsibility is for the life of the dog to keep track of it and understand where that dog is and, and what it's doing. And so from each of my litters, I have the opportunity to name uh, the registered name of that dog that goes on the Onentoffel, which is the dog's pedigree, birth certificate, driver's license, and passport all in one. And uh, the dog is tattooed and microchipped with the correlating number to that dog's name. And that's how the dog is known through the, through the German system. Yeah. And some of the Europeans also use the, um, the, uh, the year, the year to name their dog or to, yeah, to name their dogs too. Um, we learned that when we were dealing with some guys in Netherlands that instead of using the alphabet, they'll use the numeric, <clears throat> which I thought was kind of cool myself. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. I don't, before we get too deep in this, how long have you been fooling with, with, with the, the Kurtzars and what, what lit your fire to get into that specific breed and to do what you do? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. He, um, I've been doing short hairs most of my life. I was, uh, 
lucky enough to be blessed to be born into a family of guys that ran dogs before me. So I had a lot of mentorship and more importantly, uh, good memories with my grandpa and my uncle, my, my mom's dad, uh, Jerry Jacob and my uncle Scott Jacob are fully responsible for my addiction here. Um, (laughs) they used to back when it was appropriate, check me out from school and uh, take take me hunting without my mom knowing. So I wouldn't come home from school and she'd get a call about six o'clock that I'm in the truck with a pile full of pheasants or ducks or whatever. And we're, and we're inbound to get burgers. So um, as far as I can remember back, we've had bird dogs in the family, specifically uh, GSPs, which is, you know, the American standard dog. Mm -hmm. And what kind of got me was, I served a I served a two year LDS mission for my for my church and came home from it absolutely um, enamored with wanting to be a professional trainer and to guide hunts uh, solely because I missed out on, on those two years of being out serving my my religious organization and so I I, I started uh, guiding at a local club here known as Wasatch Wing and Clay and they had a guy named Chaz Holt who is a a uh, draw hard guy who basically I, sh- I showed up to some free guided youth hunt and one of the, the owners of it, uh, one of the guy head guys of it was a big member of the SCI and came back and booked, um, you know, close to $50,000 worth of hunts with me specifically. And he had no idea who I was. And, um, he brought me on and through him, I kind of discovered that there was a German system and, uh, that it also applied to the DK. So, my love for short hairs kind of propelled me from not knowing that there was a breed standard and uh, short hairs that could be trained without e-collars and short hairs that would shut it off when they came into the house. Um, I primarily had filled trial lines and some, some NAVDA lines and had competed and tested in all of those. But um, what really got me was I, I had a NAVDA utility price three dog and an AKC master hunter dog in my kennel. And my uncle bought this, this puppy jinx originally from Steve, um, Cosmicky because the Kurtz Art club had just got started here and he had to change jobs and move. And so he asked me to take the pup on since I was training professionally at the time. And he said, Hey, if you, if you do the, you know, all the testing, I would just want to pop out of her. If she, if she can make it. And within a week of her being in my house, I, I called him up almost four times in that week saying, what the heck's wrong with this dog? And he, he'd say, what do you mean? I'd say, well, she doesn't bark. She doesn't whine and she doesn't spin in her crate. She just sits calmly until I, I let her out. When I let her out, she then turns it on and goes crazy. And uh, I couldn't, I couldn't, fathom that there was a short hair that actually was uh, level-headed and calm I guess and so um, after seeing her in the field multiple times as a very young dog where she outperformed a lot of these older advanced dogs in many categories but specifically in the water and in recovery of dead game I I, I couldn't turn back there was no other option I, I had found the truth or the light <laughs> and I had and I had to move forward <clears throat> Nice. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I mean, you know, I'm kind of taking what you're saying and of course I can apply it into the hunting, hunting world that I'm in, but that's exactly 
the style of dog that I have now with my Dutchie, like, he's calm, he's laid back. I mean, you don't know, you don't even know he's around. And then when you put him out in the field, it's like you, it's like you just let the fireworks off at the 4th of July. <laughs> Live action, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it is, it's a completely different world. Um, I have been used to, well, the, like I just said, the dog that I talked about was barking in my car nonstop. That was the whole issue with him. He was like a rat on acid. He never sat down. He exerted so much energy in the car when I needed to get him out and actually work him. Most of the time, he was gassed in a very short amount of time. Yep. Um, yep. <clears throat> so, yep. yeah. I, there, there was such a big difference for me that I understood that genetically this dog was different, and I wanted to be part of whatever made that different uh, being that, you know, th- I've seen a lot of good American bred dogs. Don't get me wrong. I've been lucky enough to own a few. Um, but when I found this, there was no denying that I had to, uh, sample it further and, and test it out, which is, uh, landed me in a lifelong addiction of, of Kurt's ours and I, and I couldn't be happier. Yeah. Good. And how, and how is she still alive? Yep. She just did. 27 miles this last weekend uh in southern california uh quail hunting and 11 and a half years old and just strong as ever and and uh, doesn't doesn't seem to show any signs of slowing down but it's only gotten sweeter and calmer with time nice very nice so one of the things too i want to touch on before we get get into the training and stuff is you talked about the 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 kurtzar culture and the mission tell just tell tell the listeners a little bit about what that means and stands for yeah it i kind of coined this phrase the kurtzar culture um i didn't kind of i did coin it when i started uh venturing into the german dog clubs um and i think anyone that's part of any serious dog group or animal group will attest it seems to bring out the crazy in every single person and we we found really quickly Uh, through various clubs here in North America that the standard and ethics were being of the breed were being violated by members. um, And that just didn't sit well with me specifically hostility towards each other based on differences in lines, training styles, and, or understanding of the the rules and system. And it kind of turns into this big crapshoot of an ego game. And I, I just, at a certain point said I had my dad and brother with me at, at an event and my dad leaned over to me and my dad's my hero. He's a great man. Doesn't ever speak ill, but he leans over to me and says, Hey, I want to make sure that these are the type of people you want to be represented by moving forward. And that hit me like a, a ton of bricks. And so, um, Within a few years, me and a, f- other, a bunch of other members who had had enough of the, the, the bull crap started the DKGNA and the founding principles of it, which are that the, from performance to a standard, meaning that the standard of the performance of the dog and the breed should always be put first. And then we also hold our members accountable to the culture, which is that you know any company, any organization's greatest asset is their talent and their people. And we want it to be represented in the right way. 
And so we hold each other accountable to not violating that standard. And I know this may sound like corny, like, well, duh, that's, that should be, be anyone or any group. Well, take one look on Facebook or your local breeding listing page, and you'll find really quickly that there is someone there violating a breed standard, whether it's in your breed or mine. And so Kurt's our culture largely was developed for people to grasp hold of, of something that would say we're part of something bigger than ourselves and we're, and we're going to represent ourselves in our conduct in a way that our wives and kids would be proud of what we did when we were not home. I got you. I, I mean, that's, that's the way it should be, honestly. <clears throat> so you're the vice president of it and you're running dogs. So let's, let's start talking about the dogs. And you said you were, you were training dogs professionally. Um, what is it in the, what is it about the training that you see as some of the most valid or less the most important steps? Um, and you can talk about the bird side of it too, if that, if you need to, um, but like just in, in general, in the training, yeah, I get asked a lot of questions from puppy owners based on that that same line. And I would say there are um, two foundational principles that must be applied to a, a puppy from the day the puppy goes home. And in fact, it starts here when I breed the dog, my wife, kids, and, and I actually help start in graining in this. We, we abide by two things, which is we socialize the dog. And we expose the dog and control the behavior of the dog in those exposed scenarios while you're socializing it. So foundationally, from the day you get that dog home, you're setting up the groundwork and the basis of what that dog's going to experience life like. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a couple examples. You know, I, I have currently I have I'm up to my sea litter. Um, I've got 23 puppies out on walk, walking the god's planet earth here and uh dealt with various situations with owners but the one the one common factor that i i continually come back to is that the dogs that are struggling come from weak owners and weak handlers and it's easy to blame a dog when it's not doing what you want but i i always say that a bad a bad trainer blames the dog um you know most of these dogs have more in them than what we can give them now can you get a dog that's a dud? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Have I produced one of those? Well, knock on wood, no. Up to this point, I've had really good success with, um, you know, real wild wild bird dogs and hunting dogs. Um, but for me, I would say the foundation of everything that I do starts there. And then one more thing, and we can dive into this, is I believe that the temperament of the dog should be as such that the dog is easy to train. And that's where, you know, like I said, with Jinx, that's what got me over to the German system and the, and the Kurtzars was I, I had a level-headed dog that technically made me look good and made up for my flaws as a trainer. Mm -hmm. So does that answer that? Yeah. No, I mean, I'm a big, um, I'm a big proponent. Um, I've had several people on the podcast over the last, you know, year, uh, foundation work and, in fact, um, I had done a podcast recently with Jerry Bradshaw of uh, Tar Heel Canine, and we talked about, you know, foundation, and that's exactly what you're saying. You know, you got to get the pups out, you got to expose them, 
you got to look for the behaviors you want and discourage the behaviors you, you don't want. <laughs> um, and I, I think that makes that makes the dog so much more biddable when it comes to that time of, of putting some pressure on him and stress in the, the working environment and the other things that, that leads through the dog's life. So, yeah, I completely uh, understand that and feel like it's probably one of the most important uh, aspects of a dog's life. To, to me, without it, um, I just got a, a puppy back from my bee litter, excuse me, uh, a dog that I bred that's no longer a puppy. I got it back two years ago from a young gentleman who um, whose parents went through some very hard times and ended up splitting up. And the dog had some foundational training done with it, which was, was great, but there are still several things. The journey on Houndsman XP has teamed up with one TDC. This dual action support for oral health and mobility in our dogs. This unique supplement is so effective that it is recommended by top veterinarian experts worldwide to maintain and improve our dog's health in four different areas. Their oral health, hips, joints, and muscles, skin, coat, energy, and recovery. Guys, I've been using this product for the last six months, and it has been a game changer for me. If you're looking for something to help with the overall health of your dog, go to WorkSoWell.com and give this product a try. It is highly recommended by Houndsman XP here on The Journey. So the, I got this dog back. She's now four and a half years old and uh, foundational training with the basics like come, sit, heal, whoa, but doesn't understand her place in the pet pack order in the home. And so I'm still dealing with things like counter surfing or just pure negligence from the dog because she doesn't understand that human word actually has weight behind it whether it be through, um, you know, discipline or, or action, she, she seems to conduct herself in such an independent manner that, um, you know, she'll flip you the bird whenever she wants. And to me, those foundational things are so crucial in the beginning stages of that dog so that the other things come, like you said, almost a lot easier. And especially when you start the, the harder things like, you know, uh, retreat, re- finish retrieve work force fetch and you actually want to put pressure on that dog um the dog seems to trust you more and understand you more as a human if you do that as a puppy yes it's so and they're so much more tolerable at that younger age um yeah it's just kind of how yes it's kind of how I, i mean you can do so much more younger even though i mean you can do the other things when they're older don't don't get me wrong but it, it's when they don't have any uh, knowledge or experience, it's so much easier to, to, to put them in the right direction, so to say. Agreed. It's, it's the difference between homeschool and public school. It's the difference between public school and, and college education. And uh, I, I firmly believe it starts day one. So for us, we, we try to set our dog owners up with uh, foundational training things, but I get asked a lot, what are you doing with your dog? And I'm controlling behavior. That's it. I'm not, I'm not worried about, 
does this dog track? Does this dog point? I expect that if the dog doesn't do that, I'll probably move the dog. Um, that being said, if the dog flips me the bird in the field or disregards my command to be quiet or lay down, depending on what's going on, um, it's, it's going to get reprimanded and it, and it's repeated so consistently, consistently that the dog understands exactly what I'm asking from it before there's any discipline or, or harshness shown towards the dog. Mm-hmm. So Tyler, I want to backtrack just a minute, you know, as we're sitting here talking about training, um, how, who, who taught you, where did you learn, um, your, your skills and methods and, you know, for like, for me, I've been very fortunate. Uh, everybody's heard me talk about it on, on the podcast. You know, I've, my, my department sends me to trainings all over the country. I get to go to seminars. I get to go to some hands-on schools for the, for the law enforcement side. And then I've been to the school of hard knocks of learning the hard way in my hand, the hound world where, you know, I started back in the mid nineties and was young and dumb, didn't know anything and just took off busting through the woods. And it took me a long time to, to learn things in, in that manner. And it seems like you have been like, just bam, bam, bam. You're, you, you're there. So what, (laughs) what got your, you know, what got your start? What, or who, who helped you or who, who molded you or mentored you, um, to get where you're at in the dog world today? That's such, that's such a great question. And I have so many people to be grateful for, uh, but I'd be remiss if I did, um, suggest my grandpa, Jerry Jacob, who introduced me to this sport. And I wouldn't say he, he gave me any formal education, the one biggest factor and most important thing he taught me was how to read dogs and their behavior in the, in the actual field. You know, when we were hunting, he, he would always take the time to say, you know, watch her, see what she's doing. You know, he'd always, he had a, a, a pretty signature phrase. I remember him saying the tell will tell you everything and specific to a bird dog. And so I got to, I got to learn through, you know, real world education my uncle Scott Jacob, who I uh, also mentioned, he um, he used to check me out from school even up till senior year in high school. I would slough school with him when we we'd head up to go train with a. There's an old school pro here named Scott Barner. He was a Navda guy, and uh, he was kind enough to let my little punk 16 year old butt show up and sit with him for four hours. And uh, he taught me a lot of really great foundational. Um, methods and training techniques that I'll never be able to repay him. You know, Scott is uh, no longer alive with us on the earth. So mm. I, I think about him constantly, but, and then lastly, um, much like you, I read as much as I could. I, I gathered as many books as I could. And I started training my own dogs to the level that I thought would be appropriate against the performance tests I was in, like the AKC master hunter, and just kind of use that as my metric and got lucky enough to have a few guys see the dogs I had trained and want, uh, want me to train theirs as well. Yeah. So how much, how much time do you spend in the field a week? And I know the weather and I know you're, you travel some with work and stuff like that, but on an average, like what is your, and I think that's something that a lot of people, 
uh, I, like our season for me, I can only bear hunt three three months out of the year here. And if you go out of those three months during training season, I can hunt seven days a week if I choose to. And then during the you know the actual harvest season, I can only hunt six days. I can't hunt on Sundays. Um, so that cuts you know that cuts down your time. But how yeah. much time do you actually get to spend in the field? I know you told me that you'd been to Idaho this past week, and how much time do you spend with the dogs and and hunting and training? Yeah, so my my wife will tell you there's two seasons in the Smith household. There's hunting season, then there's training season. <laughs> so yeah. uh, we we do. I, I'm blessed in the sense that I get to spend an enormous amount of my time in the fall actually hunting behind the dog. You know, we, our hunting season starts in September here and runs all the way to the second week of February. And so I, you know, I get to spend on average, I'll spend 30 to 45 days hunt, actually hunting wild game behind the dogs in a fall. And I, I get to go on just the most incredible adventures uh, you know, five, five to eight states in that season, most years is what I try to average and uh, just create a bunch of new memories. I mean, I got to take my son, uh, Tate this year, he was nine hardcore chiefs fan. And by the way, go chiefs. That was a controversial game. <laughs> just to hey, say, you say what you, you say what you want. We're in the Super Bowl, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I got to take him out for his first chucker hunt this year with me. And, and, uh, I asked him before, I said, Tate, you going to run dogs and train dogs like your dad? He goes, well, I don't know. I've never really done it. I said, well, well, that's fair. You've been out training. He goes, yeah, that's kind of fun. After we got back in the, in the truck from chasing chucks, he, he, he grabbed me on the shoulder and goes, dad, I want to run dogs. (laughs) (laughs) I think you had a good time. That's a good thing. Pass it down. Pass it down. Yes, sir. <clears throat> so let's talk about the dogs now and uh, what you hunt, how you hunt. Uh, I know that you and I talked and um, you basically hunt from foot. Um, just get in, just get into that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, living in Utah, we have kind of a uh, unique hunting situation here. When I, when I grew up here, there were, there were plentiful pheasants uh, in Utah County. And since the, big tech companies and other businesses have started growing and booming here. Um, most of the places I grew up hunting quail and pheasants have largely been developed into houses or, or buildings. And so I've had to pivot, um, as I, you know, teenage to, to my early twenties, I started chasing a lot of, uh, dusky and rough grouse and also, uh, chucker partridge, and we've we've really never had any issues with waterfowl so long as we get uh, some cold fronts here. We get, I wouldn't say anything near what the Midwest or y'all get, but we we get good enough that I can go out and chase ducks and geese here as well. Um, but you know, one of the things I look for in in my dogs is I need a dog that's got some endurance, and I'm talking you know all day endurance. I average. Well, you know, ba- roughly based on my Garmin steps and the tracking collars that I have, I'll average between 12 and 15 miles on my boot a day, and I'll burn a pair of crispy Nevada GTX boots out uh, in a season. Mm. And th- you know, their claim is the thousand mile boot, if you will. So, uh, or at least that's what I've heard. And uh, I, I run one of those out almost every fall. Yeah. 
<clears throat> and your train go back to your training season because I I may have missed that your training season. So how long can you run dogs? Like, can you run year round? Well, tra- training here um, is is different. I don't know how y'all train there. We have access to private grounds here, and yeah. we primarily use homing pigeons and planted birds. We're not allowed to train, nor would we train on wild game birds. Most of them are in their nesting seasons when training season is. Oh, okay. And that's, you know, uniquely why the German system set up the way it is as well as it revolves around the different game that's being hunted and why they're being hunted that way. Um, so we start our training uh, with, with the DKGNA, the Desert Mountain chapter here starts right after chucker season ends. We hold free training days every single Saturday until uh, hunting season starts. And so sat every Saturday we meet uh, at Wasatch Wing Clay or we've got membership in Idaho now that's starting to hold them. <clears throat> and uh, you can come out and we'll have various things planned. But if you start with us from the beginning, the goal is to take the young dog and develop it into the finished dog by the end of the year. So that so and that would be a <clears throat> and I'm just assuming so a six month old dog to a a year and a half or is that a year old dog to a two year old dog? What is, what is that age frame for that? Or what do you, what do you look for consistently? Yeah. So our Derby class dogs are a dog from five months to about 16 months old. And that's our puppy youth group. Mm-hmm. Um, between 15 and 16 months plus the dog qualifies for our Psalms AZP test and, uh, just depending on the dog's maturity is when we'll push that dog through into those tests. Um, and then two years old on, we're looking at an advanced test like the VGP or the NAKP and those type of tests that are, um, you know, require extreme finish work, the complete finished dog, if you will. Mm-hmm. And those dogs are usually between three and four? Uh, two, two to six years old is two. where... Okay. Uh, I've seen them as young as 18 months to be truthful, but most of the time they're between two and four years old. I got you. Yeah. <clears throat> and it, it's so interesting to me. And I know I go back to Jason's podcast that I did a while back that, I mean, you're using these dogs to, to point birds and retrieve them. Correct. Yes, sir. And then, you can go plumb over to waterfowl where they're sitting with you and just basically retrieving. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, so, and I mean, you look at a, a, a multidimensional animal and I guess, you know, I'm not as uh, familiar with, with the, the bird dogs and the retrievers, but like that's to me is just fascinating that, you know, that the dog can, I mean, I know, I know because of the police side that dogs can do multiple things and be very good at, at those things. But it's just, you know, it's just amazing for me to, cause I just use my dogs to, to find a track or rig a track, chase a bear, tree a bear. That like, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not doing multiple things with, with him or them. And, you know, for you guys to be able to go out and to point 
and not flush and then retrieve and then, okay, well, next Saturday we're going to go duck hunting. So you're going to sit in a blind <laughs> with me or I guess y'all hunt out of the blind. You know, you're going to sit in a blind with me and just go retrieve birds all day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the unique thing, the Kurtzar was bred for to be the one dog to fulfill all tasks in hunting, fur, feather, water, or land. Mm-hmm. Um, our dogs are, are good tracking dogs in the sense that we do test for blood. Uh, it's one of our, our blood tracking ability. And it's one of the things uh, that I think makes this dog unique. I've done in a three-day period, I tracked a wounded mule deer buck on a muzzleloader hunt, shot a limit of chuckers, and then went up to southeastern Idaho and sat in a river bottom and, and shot mallard ducks until, um, you know, from sunup to sundown with the same same dog. It's it's a very unique type of dog. And that same dog, um, you know, I've, I've had puppies from and she's produced dogs that are in, you know, dead body cadaver search homes, search and rescue team homes. And uh, the, the dogs are multi-purpose. You know, one thing people forget is that when this breed was developed, the the Germans in the Great War used them for dead soldier and wounded soldier recovery. And uh, they, the dogs were sent out into no man's land uh, with a technique called the Brinksel. And basically the dogs train when it finds the, the end task, whether it be a human or a wounded deer, to place this uh, thing known as the Brinksel, which is basically a leather, a leather attachment to the collar in its mouth. And, and then guide the person back to the dead game or the injured person. And so th- these dogs are used for just multifaceted things. But, you know, being here in the West, we, we can track a deer, we can track an elk, we can, we can hunt coons with our dogs, um, you know, pheasant, quail, chucker, I mean, you name it. I, I want to chase it and put it in my freezer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's... I mean, that's getting your bang for your buck, with, you know, with that type of of dog. I mean, I I mean, um, I don't know if you and I talked about it, but, you know, I have uh, five, six, six, six short hairs, German short hairs in our um, canine group right now. And every, every one of them but one, I've got one that acts like what you're saying your female, like he's more laid back. Um, he's kind of like a light switch. Boom, cut him on, goes to work, does his thing, cut him off, put him back in the car. He don't know he's there. The others are exactly what you said. They're barking, spinning in the kennel. Uh, now they do, they, you know, if they didn't do the job, we, we wouldn't use them, but, sure. um, but th- this, the, um, I don't know if the disposition of them is completely different. And me, I prefer the dog like what you're saying. I prefer the dog that is laid back and chill. And then, you know, all right, let's go to work. Bam, here we go. And I'm so curious to, like, I think I'm going to start doing some research and see if any of those are actually in the law enforcement realm. There has to be a yeah. couple out there somewhere. I, I know um, one of our founding members, Jörg Kaltnegger, who is a German who who his parents immigrated here to America. He fought in our Air Force. He's a true hardcore-blooded American who's fought in many wars for us. His his lines, he's got dogs in multiple 
uh, FBI homes and he's got dogs overseas in Afghanistan and Iraq that are doing detection work, um, which is really cool and unique. And so, you know, I, for me, you touched on something, Heath, that I, I would love to share if, if, if I'm not diving off too far, but temperament is everything to me. And it's almost unlivable now. I can't, I can't not have it. <laughs> no, it's, I think it's important in all, uh, breeds. Um, the temperament is, you know, of course we look for it in, in our dogs that we're choosing for the law enforcement side. Um, like we used to have dogs that were, were, were a lot of dog aggression. Um, and you know, over the last 10 years we've moved, like we don't want that at all. We can't have that anymore. So yeah, talk about temperament. Tell tell us what you're looking at, what you see, and even if you want to take it back to your puppies, what you what you um, you had touched on it earlier about you know some of the things that you're correcting and stuff. If it's temperament, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I one of the unique things about the Kurtzar system is we're the only German hunting dog group that I know of that has an actual temperament test and the test is known as the Vazen. and after each hunt test that we we hold or or even in during the middle of it the dog is evaluated for uh its mental calmness and the ability to shut it off and uh, what the test is looking for is the fluidity of the dog it's looking at um uh, i guess i'll back up what the test actually does is so middle of a hunt period in in germany they're required by law to quit chasing game and the dog is put uh, you know a lot of times you're out in the field the dog is put in the down position and required to stay there until the rest period's over mm-hmm. and so we we simulate that here and um like during our middle of our solms test you know when the dogs are having to track and and there's live game and gunfire these dogs are required, we pull them all out as a group, and about every 10 or 15 yards, we place the dog on a down, and the dog is required to stay there, and the group backs up, we get our lunches out, our drinks, and the judges stand there, and they evaluate the damn dog, <laughs> and um, you know, what they're looking for is exactly what we just talked about, is the dog that can shut it off and know its place, sit calmly, not whine, distract the group. They evaluate aggression here because what will happen is you get a, do- a male dog that's too driven. They'll stand up and go square off with another male dog. Mm-hmm. And uh, those dogs are marked and noted. So, you know, when I go to breed to a dog, let's say I have never seen seen the dog besides what the guy's telling me, pictures and videos and photos. I'm able to say, hey, let me look at your test scores. And in the Vazen section, I should be able to tell you know, for this dog, for the most part, it's reasonably calm and trainable and in, in stressful situations can sit down and be quiet. So, yeah, I got a couple of questions to, go f- to follow up on that because I want to know what age, and I know that you said the different stages. So is that through the first stage of testing or is that the second stage? And how, what when do you start training that because that's something we have to do in our uh certification too is after we get done with our obedience session the dog has to do a downstay for uh three minutes um which is nothing but the dog has got to shut down and, and downstay i walk away from him 
Just like that's exactly what you're saying. And then, you know, the dog's got to stay there. He's got to stay at a down. If he breaks the down, it starts all over. And if he breaks the second time, you're, you're done. Um, yep. So, yeah, talk to me a little bit about that process. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's pretty self-explanatory. But like you said, um, the derp, at the derby level is different than the Psalms AZP level. And the Psalms AZP level is different than the VGP or the further advanced tests. And there's reasons for that age, experience, and exposure of the dog. So at at our derby level, the dog is required to be, they can be tied out or staked out. So I suggest to most guys, pass your damn test and go tie the dog off to a piece of sagebrush. Don't risk having the dog get up and go, you know, blow you the middle finger pretty much if the dog stays in the sitting position at the derby level, you're going to get a passing grade on the Vazen uh, portion of your test. If the dog's uh, overly obnoxious, whining, that all gets physically written into the, to the report and noted under a grade between one being bad and four being high. And how long do they have to hold this? The puppy level, three to five minutes. And then the next level? The next level at the Solms AZP, the dog cannot be leashed, tied, or stake, and has to be a true downstay. And I've seen judges, um, the last test that I just competed in, the dog does uh, 10 to 15 minutes. And, and so it's a real down, it's a real butt pucker mm-hmm. for the handler. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a long time, and especially um, with distractions. You've got people walking around, talking, having a conversation. Um, you know, that's uh, for people that's not trained that aspect of of a dog. Um, that that's not an easy. T- it can be done, and it can be done fairly easy. But that that takes time. Yep. I mean, that's it not takes time work. Yeah, it's not something that's uh, that's done overnight. I mean, again, it's it's a process, and <clears throat> yep. yeah, I I'd like to. And I'm sitting here thinking as as we're talking, you know, my my wheels are spinning. Like, I need to do that with. We don't. Sh- we do shoot with our police dogs. We have to do it. That's a part of our certifications where we have to actually have the dog at a at a heel, fire two rounds, decoy fires two rounds. The dog cannot break on the gunfire, um, which has changed in the last five years because it used to be able. When the person started firing a weapon at us, the dog was allowed to go down and apprehend them. But we we changed that in the certification process. So we need to do, I need to, just sitting here thinking, I need to do more gun firing with my dog at that level. Um, just listening to what you're yeah. saying, I'm like, yeah, I got to I gotta clean that up. Yeah, the, the other unique thing is that throughout the entire day, the dog's behavior is being evaluated. So if there's a problem dog, it's it's noted. It's not just the Vazen test that says, oh, your dog's good. If you have a dog that's obnoxious in the, in the truck or, um, you know, too bullheaded or aggressive, those type of things, those are also caught in kind of built into that score and test day. So um, and then the last one is our VGP and the Vazen test really isn't, um, it's done, but it's done throughout the entire test. You do a driven hunt with a dog on down 
and the dog has to remain on down through a series, a sequence of shots um, between you with the dog right next to you and then guys out, out actually in the forest trying to push game in front of the dog. And no matter what happens with the deer, turkeys, birds, whatever, come flying out, the dog must remain completely obedient and not move. And then through the gunfire, the dog must not move, which is, is, I've done it. It's absolutely crazy. And then there's another portion of this where, like, a, a, it's a situation where you're going to jump shoot game. The dog is healed through a healing course, which it has to pass. Um, then a long stretch of, you know, picking up your pace and slowing down where the dog is then placed in the middle of a dirt trail um, in the down position and you disappear from the sight of the dog for about two minutes. And then you shoot a series of sequencing shots and the dog must remain in the down position or you fail the test. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, and I'm just sitting here cause I want to go back to the breeding real quick, but you can't replace good genetics. I mean, you just can't Agreed. do it. I mean, you can't do it. Amen. Um, Amen. So before we get into the breeding, because I'm, I'm always astonished at the Germans' um, strictness of the breeding program. And I, I know we've talk, I've talked about that before, but I, I want to hit on it before we close out this session. But at what age... How long do you give it when you when you raise a litter of puppies? Uh, how long do you give those pups? And I know they mature differently. I mean, we could go through a whole nother podcast about what I'm asking, <laughs> but I just want like a like a very like at what like some of our hounds guys they'll keep dogs to their you know three and four years old, and we can look at it financially. Well, maybe that you know this is what they got and they've got to hunt it. I've been there, done that. I, I've been in those shoes. Um, I've been very impatient with young dogs and didn't let them mature and I got rid of them and then I regretted it, uh, as age has caught up with me a little bit. And again, the blessings that I've had with people mentoring me and coaching me and the training that I've been, um, allowed to go to and attend, um, I judge things a whole lot differently now, <clears throat> but in general, Tyler, what what are you looking for at what age to make you say, okay, I'm going to keep this dog and I'm going to give it uh, every opportunity that I can to be successful? Or I'm really not seeing the things that I want to see. I may give you a couple months, and if you don't make some improvements then, or I'm just not going to keep you because you're not what I'm looking for. That's a, that's a great question, and again, we could spend – three episodes just on, on <laughs> yes. that alone. You know, I've had the same experience, but I'll, I'll just tell you. So the, the Kurtzar system's designed so that a dog matures very quickly and then becomes very useful at a very young age. And for me, um, by 18 months to 24 months old, so two years, if the dog's not exhibiting the signs of what I need it to, I'll, I'll probably start to move on the dog only because I know there's better and, and bigger talent available to me. Um, so I'm not going to, for my goals and my purposes, I'm not going to sit on that dog and hope the dog develops. Most of the puppies and dogs that I've trained have been 
able to accomplish most of this stuff by two years old. So um, that's my mark. And I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair shake. I mean, I'm with you. I've, <clears throat> I've got rid of some dogs younger than that because I didn't see certain things. They don't have to be a world beater by no means, but I need to see certain things. I, I got to see that, um, those mom, little, little moments of greatness. And then Absolutely. I can start putting them together. And if I don't see that, that then it's very discouraging for me. Um, but yeah, I think two years is a, I mean, I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair point. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you why, um, for the first, first reason they get multiple, you know, two and a half, maybe even three full seasons of hunting and under, and, and this is not me being arrogant or cocky, but under my program of what I get to do, these dogs will have enough exposure by that point that I, if I'm not seeing it, I, I'm probably not going to get it out of that dog. Um, someone else may, may damn well be, but for what I'm looking for, no. And then the, the other part of this is the confirmation side of it is equal of importance to us for the dog's physical development. I personally don't ever judge a, a dog until about three or four years old on its physical build. Because I've seen I've seen males from different strains, different lines, whose heads don't mature out until they're three and a half, four years old, and that same dog was, you know, noted in the ring as a puppy to be underdeveloped. And you know, you'll hear guys walking around the ring, oh, that dog, that's, that dog's crap. He looks like garbage, and which isn't a fair statement. And then at four years old, uh, they'll win in the top ring in the entire world in the Clemens confirmation. Um, test and they'll place in the highest categories possible. So there's a variation of how I look at the dog, but I think it takes the keen eye and, and the experience to determine that. Mm, yeah. So you're saying ability I'm judging here or I'm looking at here and then confirmation, um, I'm going to let that dog fill out mature and stuff. And that's going to, I'm going to, the confirmation don't have a whole, well, <laughs> I don't want to say that the confirmation is different than the workability. Yes. A hundred, a hundred percent. My, my dogs, for whatever reason, mature quickly in the field, but physically I don't see what I want out of them till they're three, four years old. And it's just whatever my genetics have, um, produced. I've, and I've outcrossed to, to try to improve that. And it just seems to be consistent with me. And so I don't grade my dogs. Uh, and I'll give you a good example. My Berlin dog was an SG. SG is our middle of the line you know, mid pack, um, confirmation grade at a young age and just didn't seem to really fill out was kind of like still, I don't even know the word I'm looking for gangly. And, um, over time she's gotten better looking and I just had her graded in the largest show ring in North America for the Kurtzar system under Dagmar Hadek, who is revered as, you know, the end all confirmation judge. She wrote our breed standard, and uh, she she would place in the top four dogs there, nice. and so I just yeah giving her giving her the time to physically mature. Um, but that that same female is lights out on wild game birds. Well, so she's I mean she's doing well at both ends, and I mean that's what we want to produce. We want to produce um, an overall um, specimen for that breed. <laughs> like that's what 
that's what our goal should be, which bleeds us into the, the next little segment here. Before we before we end this, um, we wrap this up, Tyler. I'm always been astonished again. I said that again about the Germans' breed standards and stuff. And you said, during, like as we've been talking, that you know that's that'll be a nick on that dog for standing up and um, you know hovering over another dog or the temperament here and this and that. So with how many how many little X's or however y'all grade or judge that, how many of those no-nos becomes a no-breed? You're not breeding it. Yeah, there, so we, we categorize, um, it, so there's faults, serious faults, and eliminating faults in our breed. So three categories of faults. Um, a fault could be anything from a physical confirmation fault, to a, a serious serious fault, which would be like a an aggressive dog or whatever. At a certain point, when the dog doesn't meet the standard, we have an excluding fault. And um, just for an example, a dog may may fail the steadiness portion of his VGP pointing work, and that excludes the dog from passing the VGP. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, in each category, those are the kind of the three ways it's looked at. So you may have a dog that is a hardcore hunting, great animal in the field, which by all means I would own it, keep it, and use it, and hunt it till it died. But it may not be a qualified breeding dog because it can't meet that standard of, you know, fault, serious fault, or, or eliminating fault. And um, there's variations of that. So if you've got a dog that's ultra aggressive and is throwing puppies that are ultra aggressive towards humans or other dogs. Um, that's the job of our breed wardens to step in and say, Hey, you know, th- this dog shouldn't be bred anymore. Um, and, and so there it's, it's kind of an, as strict as it may sound, it's, it's more of a, uh, intellectual, uh, by the book as well as by the, you know, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Mm-hmm. No. And I, and I mean, they hold that standard and that's, um, that's what I think is amazing that, um, you know, they, they don't falter and they don't, like I said, the contacts and the, the people that I've met from Europe, I mean, that they're sticklers on that stuff. I mean, it's not a, there's not any, there's not any gray area. <laughs> it's, nope. it's yes or no. And yep. I feel like as Americans and I'm guilty, I have bred dogs for no other reason than, I got two dogs here and I want puppies. I never yep. put the foresight in it um, to be that complex and that um, calculated and methodical into my breeding program. And that's one thing that I am trying to work on within my my dogs is making sure – and, uh, you know, Jason – said Carter said this, you know, breeding best to best. Like like I want to breed the best possible specimen of a bear dog that I can to my best specimen of a bear dog female or vice versa. And that's that's try, that's my goal that I'm trying to um get going in my breeding. And I'm you know, I'm older now. I'm not going to have a bunch of litters. But um, that's something that I'm trying to work on within myself. 
that's that's incredible and i commend you for that you know the one challenge i would throw out to any of the users or listener listeners here is to which standard do you hold yourself accountable to because i've heard multiple short hair guys in this community say well i am breeding the best but then when that dog is presented for you know physical confirmation temperament um clear-headedness water ability uh, i'll tell you this the reason i switched was because the Kurtzars got you beat somewhere. Uh, somewhere, somehow, uh, I hear this all the time, well, my American bred dog, GSP, it can do that. And, and I don't disagree. I, I had American bred GSPs that could do that too. The difference is, is we're actually trying to look out for the longevity of the breeding. It only takes one breeding to ruin the entire gene pool you're working on. It takes one crap breeding of crossing the two wrong dogs, and then those dogs end up in the wrong hands to just co- keep compounding that effect. Mm-hmm. And uh, I could I commend you and couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. <clears throat> so, Tyler, before we uh, wrap up here, I'll give you opportunities. Is there anything you want to add, take away, anything that we you think that we may have left out that's very important um, that you want to to get out to the listeners? You know, I'm just I'm honored to be here, and I'm grateful that I got to meet you and 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 have your friendship. And so I've you know everything I've said I've said said with my full heart and and clear conscience, and uh, appreciate the opportunity is to you know spread my message and have uh, have you guys hear me, and more importantly, get out there, expose the youth, and um, go hunt and uh, keep this tradition alive because we can't we can't lose it. Yes, um, and one of the things that that we here at Houndsman XP are really pushing. Um, and I seen somebody post it the other day. So if you guys made it all the way through this podcast and you're listening to the end, you know, all, all dog hunters have to, have to unite. It doesn't matter what game we're chasing or flushing or pointing or baying or treeing. Like, they're, the, the antis are trying to push dog hunting out, period. And that goes for all of us. I'm fighting a fight for you. I'm going to fight the fight for the rabbit beagles and everybody else. So, um, you're, what you're saying is right. And you know, we we we've got to get together. Um, and I hope, like I said, I want to learn. Like I want to learn about your breed and what what you guys do. And um, you know, we don't, I don't have a lot of opportunity to bird hunt here. I've got a couple guys that do it, but most of them, like, they travel. Uh, one of my good friends that lives just a mile down the road, um, he basically goes to Maine and hunts. That's, that's where he goes. Our bird population here is not, is not very good. So, well, the uh, invite's open for you to come out and experience some hardcore Western live action with your boy here and uh just make sure you've got excellent boots and more importantly that you're in shape well (laughs) if round is a shape i have got that covered (laughs) but no tyler i may i may take you up on that like i said i I, you know love new experiences i love to travel and hunt and i can honestly say and guys don't don't throw the water at me i've never hunted behind a bird dog I never have. Wow. So. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's change that. Well, we will. We will. So Tyler, with every episode, we always end with the same saying is thank you for helping us teach, train and learn and expose us to 
your world of hunting with a dog. Thank you, Heath, for having me. It was an honor to be a guest on here, and I'll look forward to our relationship. Yes.